Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Cold Cases from the U.S. series. If you're new here, we've been traveling all through the states to talk about a handful of cases from each one. We've made quite a bit of progress this year, and tonight we're adding another state to the list. Here are three cold cases from Massachusetts. The Case of Molly Bish Molly's case begins in Warren, Mass., a small town with just over 5,000 residents as of 2010. Her family had moved there when Molly was just four years old in 1987 from their neighborhood in Detroit. Their life in Mass. was just like anyone else's. The family had settled, and by 2000, Molly, who was now 16 years old, was working as a lifeguard at the Commons Pond in Warren. It was a job she took a lot of pride in. Her mother said on Unsolved Mysteries, Molly was very proud to be a lifeguard. She worked very hard for that, and she did get this position at Warren Pond. It's a beautiful location, but it's surrounded by woods, and it's somewhat isolated. Unfortunately, this beautiful and serene location would become the place of heartbreak and mystery. It was the 27th of June, 2000, when Molly was last seen working as a lifeguard. It was that day someone abducted her. She'd only been on the job for one week. The news was broken to her mother when the police called and reported to her that there was no lifeguard on duty and all of Molly's belongings were left by her chair at her post. Maggie, Molly's mother, rushed to the scene. Molly's father was also there and said on Unsolved Mysteries, It's hard for me to describe that sinking, hollow feeling you have as drivers are looking for your daughter as Dogs are combing through the woods, and police officers are searching and interviewing people. And I almost immediately begin to think that something really horrible happened. Chief Ronald J. Syriac said that nothing that belonged to Molly had been undisturbed. Her lunch bag, first aid kit, and the two-way walkie were all left behind. According to Chief Ronald, there were no clues at the scene either. No signs of a struggle. No blood, nothing that would indicate Molly was taken by force. Though, in one Boston Globe article, someone reported hearing a scream the day Molly was taken. It was clear that she'd been abducted. As we said, she loved her job as a lifeguard and there was no reason for her to run off and leave everything behind. If she would have had to have leave her post, she would have told someone via the two-way walkie we mentioned before. Her mother Maggie says she knew from the beginning that someone took her daughter, and after she thought about it more, she realized she may have seen the man responsible just the day before. On the 26th of June, Maggie was dropping off Molly at the pond when she made eye contact with a man in a vehicle not far from the pond. She said he was just sitting there, smoking a cigarette, and wouldn't break eye contact with her. He wouldn't give a friendly nod. He wouldn't wave and smile. He just stared. Molly's mother was quoted saying, I just felt uneasy. I did not want to leave Molly with this man. Maggie walked Molly down to her post and stayed for a short time before heading back thinking the man would be gone, but he wasn't. She said, and lo and behold, I think I've been gone for a reasonable time, but this man who was in this vehicle is still there. I'm very upset that he's still there, so I lock eyes with him. I'm giving him a stare, trying, I guess, to maybe scare him away. He returns the stare and just boldly stares at me, just 
cocky as hell. He just squinted his eyes and he stared at me and just kept smoking and he didn't seem to care. She waited for him to leave and the following day, he wasn't there. There was only a vehicle there to unload sand for the beach, though I've not seen anywhere if this man who was sketched on Maggie's recollection was connected to this in any way. The conversation with the sketch artist took over nine hours, but Maggie said when she saw it, she was afraid. When I saw the completed picture with the cigarettes, I had an instant fear. I mean, it was him, you know, the eyes. It was this cockiness. It was this look. At this time, the internet was still in its infancy, so social media was basically out of the question. Outside of flyers and news broadcasts, Maggie only knew of one way to get this man's face out there. Mass chain emails. It's reported that over 35,000 emails were sent out that included his sketch. Unfortunately, time passed and no one came forward. It wouldn't be until three years later some questions were answered. Before that, though, police were hard at work to trying to find out who was responsible. Just three days following Molly's abduction, an article was published in the Boston Globe saying... Police investigating the disappearance of 16-year-old Molly Ann Bish narrowed down a list of suspects to six or seven people they believe may be responsible for her disappearance. Two of these men included someone described as in their 40s who was seen lurking around the parking lot where Molly was working. This seems to fit the sketch of the man that Maggie saw. Another suspect was a young man only a teenager, who was said to have been seen staring at Molly from a distance on numerous occasions. On the 10th of June, 2003, the Boston Globe published an article breaking the bittersweet news that Molly's remains were discovered. She was only a few miles from the pond where she'd worked. Her bathing suit was also found nearby, and it was clear someone forcefully took her life. From the article... At a somber press conference yesterday, investigators announced that they had found the remains of Molly Bish. Now a nagging question confronts them. Can they find her killer? A little bit further down, a forensic pathologist was quoted in regards to how long the remains had been there. They said, Nothing's going to remain in place. It's doubtful that he left clothing. Whatever he may have left, if he smoked a cigarette, if he drank a beer, he left a footprint, a fingerprint, he left hair, semen, whatever you might think of, it's gone. Everything is gone. As of now, there is no official COD. As Molly's remains were very decomposed, it was impossible to discern. With that said, there were no signs of blunt force to her head or body on the bones, so that has been ruled out. There were also no cuts or scrapes reported, and it's unlikely she was attacked with a knife or other sharp object. Finally, no gunshot wounds were found either. Police are assuming this was a case of asphyxiation. Now, 20 years later, Molly's parents are very hopeful that some new DNA test will lead to discovering who took their daughter's life. As of 2019, police are trying new tests that may yield new DNA evidence. I, for one, am hopeful. As an article from WCVB5 states, the investigators are in talks with Parabon Labs, who we've seen do some incredible work in the past. Until then, police are of course asking for any information you have that you think can help to be reported. 
You can submit any tips or info to the Mass Police at 508-453-7575. The Case of Lynn Burdick From all accounts, Lynn was a very well-mannered and sweet young woman. At the time of her abduction, 1982, she was studying at McCann Vocational Technical High School, where she was a senior. When she wasn't working on her studies or spending time with friends, the five foot four young woman with long, dark brown hair was working part-time as a clerk at the small shop known as the Barefoot Peddler County Store in Florida, Mass., an incredibly small town with, as of 2010, only had a population of 752. The store is no longer standing, but some photos of it do exist from articles published around the time. The story of Lynn's abduction starts on the 17th of April, 1982. That night around 8.30, Lynn simply vanished, for lack of a better term. That night at the store, which was said to be a few hundred yards from Lynn's home, someone called to see how things were going, as she was meant to close at 9 p.m. That call came at 8. Now, from what I've seen online, there are two separate reports as to what took place from 8 to 8.40. The call was from either her parents or her cousin. As I said, there are conflicting reports. Either way, she didn't answer, so Brian, Lynn's brother, was sent to go check on her. That's when they discovered that Lynn was missing. That is the story according to the Berkshire Eagle. Burdick's cousin called the store at approximately 8 p.m. on the night of April 17, 1982, to check on Burdick, who was scheduled to close at the Barefoot Peddler an hour from that time. Burdick told her cousin that a customer had arrived while they were speaking on the phone and she would have to hang up to attend to the person. She's never been heard from again. Another customer entered the store approximately 40 minutes later and noticed that it was abandoned and the door was open. He was familiar with the Burdick's family and called them to report her missing. I did quite a bit of digging and found an article published just a year after she was abducted that states... Police were called in after a customer reported the woman missing from the store at 8.40 p.m. I believe if this customer was related to Lynn in any way, it would have been mentioned. So with that said, the story from the Charlie Project seems much more likely. An article published a year after her abduction notes that her jacket and purse were also missing, as well as $180 from the register. There was a larger amount of money located under the counter that Lynn would have known about, but that was left untouched. The book Lynn had been reading between customers was also left at the store. With no sign of a struggle and the money from the register missing, police soon came to the conclusion that she'd been abducted, most likely at gunpoint. From the beginning, this case was proving to be difficult. From the article we mentioned before, the first searchers were out within an hour, trying to see through the rain and fog that obscured almost everything. Throughout the coming week, volunteer searchers worked long hours, combing the mountains and roadsides, muddy and sometimes block remainders of the blizzard snows earlier in the month. In the course of a year, police have found nothing. Not a purse, not a note, not a candy wrapper or article of clothing. 
Police continue to believe that Lynn was abducted from the store, but state and local police disagree on the outcome. Flattery, the corporal, said CPAC is treating this disappearance as involving foul play. Chief Briggs is looking for a living Lynn. The debate of Lynn being alive or deceased was quite strong until the years continued to pile on without a body or her being found. From what I've seen, there is only one notable lead in this case, and even that has come to a dead end. The lead focused on a man who attempted to abduct a young woman from the Williams College campus not far from Florida Mass, about 40 minutes from when Lynn was believed to have been taken. The young woman at campus was able to find off her abductor and gave a description of his car to police. They later stated that what they believed to have been the same car was seen heading down Route 2 towards Florida Mass. The barefoot peddler was on Route 2, which would place the suspect at the scene of Lynn's abduction. Unfortunately, when police saw the car, the man inside couldn't be identified. And while CCTV was available at this time, there has been no mention of the barefoot peddler having a system like that in place. Another lead came in the form of a letter sent to Lynn's father from someone in Boston who made claims that his daughter was abducted and had her life taken by a man in North Adams, Mass. in 1995. The letter was, of course, given to the police, but nothing ever came of it, as the writer has yet to come forward to speak to police. With that said, the man mentioned in this letter is a suspect. Lynn's father stated in a 1996 article that this guy, the one mentioned in this letter, he's not a nice person, so it's possible. I've got my eye on this guy. Still, there is not enough evidence to bring this man forward, and police are at the point where it's believed to be a heartless hoax meant to build false hope. Many newer articles state that tips have all but trickled out as of late, but police are still hopeful to find Lynn's remains or the person who abducted her from the barefoot peddler 38 years ago. Could the customer she mentioned while she was on the phone have been the person who abducted her, or was it someone else? If you believe you have any information or a tip that can help police move this case forward, don't hesitate. You can contact the Massachusetts State Police Berkshire Barracks at 413-499-1112. She had become known as the Lady of the Dunes, her mystery a grisly slice of town lore still clinging to memory at the tip of Cape Cod. Her body was found in 1974 amid the green pines and dry sand at Race Point Beach. Her skull was crushed by someone evidently intent on taking not just her life, but her identity. The killer had also cut off her hand, leaving no fingerprints and rendering her forever anonymous. Let's hope that's not true. As that article states, this young woman's case begins in 1974 when a nine-year-old girl discovered the remains on the 26th of July while walking her dog. It's believed the young woman was deceased for around two weeks before this discovery, given the increased amount of insect activity on the body. Also very notable were the mention of two different sets of footprints as well as tire tracks leading away from the scene. 
With the remains, a beach blanket was found, which half of her body was laying on, along with a blue bandana and a pair of Wrangler jeans, both of which were under her head. Her hair was long, past the shoulders, and was described as auburn or red. With no signs of a struggle, police theorize she either knew the person who took her life or was asleep at the time of her attack. Not mentioned in the article was that the young woman's head was nearly taken off her body, though it was the blow to the head that killed her. This was possibly caused by a military entrenching type tool. Finally, there were signs of sexual assault, though they were believed to have been post-mortem. The removal of her hands was most likely done to delay an ID, and it worked. Some have theorized that her fingerprints may have been on file, be that because of previous criminal charges or working in a field that requires it. Also, despite there being numerous reports of $5,000 to $10,000 worth of dental work being done in crowns and fillings, numerous teeth were removed. Whoever took this young woman's life knew what they were doing. The case stayed active for quite some time before officially being classified as cold in October of 1974. She was also buried around this time. 24 years later, in August 1998, an article from the Boston Globe was published stating that it was possible she could be identified. For almost a decade, they have speculated that the victim may have been Rory Jean Kessinger a woman with her own run-ins with the law who had disappeared after escaping from prison the year before the murder. Recently, they used a private investigator to track down Kessinger's mother in the hopes of verifying whether the victim was her daughter. The identification never came, and the case froze over once again. Numerous theories of who this young woman could have been came and went with no big breaks in the surface. In 2018, though, horror author Joe Hill made an interesting proposal. What if the woman was spotted in the blockbuster hit Jaws? This still from the film around the 54-minute mark shows a woman in a blue bandana and what's believed to be Wrangler jeans. At the time of filming, many, many locals were used as extras for the film, so if she lived in the area, it isn't too far-fetched to believe she somehow made it into the film. Joe even wrote that he spoke with an FBI agent about the possible connection, and the agent supposedly responded, noting that it wasn't a bad idea to look into the claim. Inside Edition even had a small piece talking about the theory. Now, 46 years later, after being exhumed twice and numerous sketches and 3D models constructed showing what the woman could have looked like, there are simply no answers. There was no evidence at the scene other than the pants and bandana, and it's even been believed that she was placed there and possibly killed somewhere else. There are simply too many questions without answers here. If you believe you have any clue to who this young woman is or who could have taken her life, don't hesitate to report it to the proper authorities. You can call the Provincetown Police at 508-487-1212 or 508-487-1213. You can also contact them through this email that you see on screen right now. Finally, you can contact the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner, James Pokines, 
at 617-267-6767, extension 176, in reference to the case number 2000-876. I want to give a big thank you to everyone who tuned into the video tonight and those who just listened over on Anchor. If you don't know, all of my videos are available there, audio only, so you can listen and save your phone's battery and mobile data. I also want to give a huge thanks to everyone on screen right now. These are the absolutely incredible patrons and channel members. For those who don't know, becoming a $1 patron or member grants you access to videos a day or sometimes two days in advance. It also really helps out the channel. So... Thank you to all those people, and thank you to anyone who considers it. Finally, just thank you to everyone for supporting the content, leaving a like, and clicking that bell so you don't miss any new videos. Take care of yourself, each other, and as always, stay safe out there.